Well, good morning. It's uh, wonderful to see you uh, this morning, and it's uh, my privilege to continue the series that we started uh, three weeks ago. We're calling this uh, series the Essential Series, and it's really a celebration of the Reformation and the five truths that so strongly come out of that period of time. The truths are in Scripture alone, by grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Now, do you reckon you can remember that between now and the time we finish the series? Those five solas? We're going to have a pop quiz next week. And uh, you've got to get them. So what are they? Scripture? That's outstanding. That's absolutely outstanding. Thanks, John. Any, any, anybody other than Australian like uh, your interpretation of that? <laughs> yeah, excellent. Anyway, so we, we are, this morning, we have the, as I said, the privilege to just look at this, this essential, uh, Christ alone. And... You know, I have some questions to ask about that. Uh, if I were to ask you to, to speak to me about that particular truth, if I ask you what does it mean in light of uh, the Protestant Reformation, in light of what happened 500 years ago, as we've been discussing, what does Christ alone mean? How would you define it? There's many ways that you could define it, right? But what the Reformation did is what it, it brought a light upon this particular truth in the way that supported the fact of faith alone, supported the fact of uh, Scripture alone, and grace alone. You see, we've been discovering and we've discussed it that Scripture alone in the light of the Reformation was an incredibly important fact against the church of the day. Because the church of the day was, was being the authority. The church of the day was saying, you must do this, you must do this, you must do this, based on tradition, based on man-made rules, based on things that were made up that they thought were spiritual but were imposing upon the people. Things like indulgences, things like uh, even Lent, things like uh, buying or meriting salvation through a, a work or through an act of, uh, of goodness. But the Reformers said, no, our authority is not, not the church or not the councils but the word of God. Scripture alone. That's where we find the truth. That's where we find how it is that we are saved. That is where we find how it is we are to live this life in the power of the Spirit. The second thing which was discussed last week was grace alone. You see, the church at the time was, was playing with this. They, they were saying that all grace was inferred and, and conferred through the Pope or through his priests. The Pope called himself Christ's vicar or representative on earth and, 
and such, he was saying that he was the only channel of grace by which God's grace could flow. You see, when you open up Scripture, that's blown apart. God, through his precious Son, pours out grace and unmerited favor to you and I. Grace is a gift. It's something that we cannot earn. It's not something that, you know, as the Catholic Church at that time, the Roman Catholic Church at that time, was trying to infer grace through the seven sacraments, through the sacraments of baptism, confirmation, mass, penance, um, ordination, last rites, marriage. In some way, the church at the time was saying that they were the tap that was conferring this grace upon everyone by keeping these sacraments. But the reformers said no. The reformers said no. Grace is God's gift and God's gift alone. And hallelujah for that. God's unmerited favor upon you and I. Directly apportioned to us through Christ and Christ alone. God's grace is a gift. It's granted by the authority of Scripture. It's taught by God and God alone, by His Spirit. He is the giver of grace. He is the giver of salvation. We can add nothing, 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 nothing to our salvation. It is God's free gift of grace alone. So I started with asking the question about Christ alone. What would you say that means? Well, as I've studied this and, and thought through the reformers, the many reformers through this period of time, I think I want to break it down to something very simple for us today. What are the essential elements of this truth of Christ alone? And as you read the Reformers, it, it, it tends to come out in, in the language of this is the theology of the cross. It's about the doctrine of atonement. It relates to why Christ, Christ's cruel death on a Roman cross, why that was necessary. It relates to Jesus Christ, God's only Son, who died a criminal's death, and yet He was perfectly spotless, perfectly sinless. He was the Lamb of God. And as I read through the, these, these men of old, they, they were just saturated with the view of Christ and Christ alone through His sacrificial atonement for sin. you'd like to put it in modern day terms, they were gospel-centered in their approach. Nothing else mattered. They were Christocentric. Not only for the process of salvation, not only for becoming a follower of Christ, but also for ongoing sanctification for ongoing walking with Christ. 
way of example, I just want to, I want to talk about the Swiss Reformation. Now, I'm not even going to try and pronounce this guy's first name, but his second name is Zwingli. And uh, just as the Reformation was starting in Germany and began with Luther knocking a 95 thesis upon the door of the castle of Wittenberg, at the same time Zwingli was uh, stationed in Zurich. He was a Catholic priest, much like Luther was a Catholic priest. He was born around the same time and he, he, he lived a little bit shorter than Luther in his lifespan. But he got miraculously saved in 1519. This is about two years after Luther had nailed his thesis on the door. He got miraculously saved because he started reading scripture. He got a hold of, of scripture and he started to read the truths of scripture and saw that there was this disconnect between what he knew and what was true. So as all good Swiss people do, in protest, in silent protest, he says, I'm going to have a, a real go at this. Through the period of Lent, which is the, the, the Catholic feast prior to, prior to Easter, I'm going to eat sausages. He'd make a great Aussie, wouldn't he? He'd make a great Aussie. Fire the barbecue up, we're going to have sausages through Lent. So his church, uh, in Minster, the Minster Church in Zurich, started going against papal authority, started going against church tradition because they were being shaped and formed by the authority of Scripture, and they started eating sausages. This is a public protest. It defied both the tradition and the, and the Catholic Church's authority in the name of Scripture. Because you know, in Scripture, there's nothing that talks about keeping a feast of Lent. Nothing. At all. So it's a man-made tradition. And so he protested against it. Secondly, he was concerned about the fact that he was celibate. So he wrote wrote a petition about being married. Some say that the whole Zwingli, the whole Zwingli um, Reformation was about sausages and sex. That's what some say. Well, I wouldn't say that, of course. But he wanted to upset the traditions of the church, so he wrote a petition about marriage. Actually, Zwingli wasn't that moral in this whole regard because he'd had a mistress for a couple of years prior to, and Miss Reinhardt was her name. And he ended up by marrying Miss Reinhardt, but uh, he was concerned about the fact of these traditions. In, 19, in 1523, much like uh, Luther, he decided to write 67 articles. You know, obviously this was the thing to do amongst theologians and pastors okay, during the Reformation. If you've got something to say, you write about it and it gets published on the printing press. But these 63 articles, and this is where I want to draw your attention to, to Christ alone, show the heart of Zwingli. He defines the gospel. He redefines the church. He defines the mass was not a sacrifice and a remembrance feast only. Now, this is where Zwingli and Luther separated, right? 
Because Zwingli said, ah, no, the bread and the wine is just a remembrance feast of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Whereas Luther said, no, um, the bread and wine in some way still confers grace. Christ's presence is in, on, and around those elements. But in these articles, he, he defends his, his view on a remembrance feast. And, and honestly, this is, where, this is the heart of where we have our remembrance feast. Okay? He also affirmed that Christ alone remits sins. He denies perjury. He speaks against fasting, Lent, and celibacy. I'm going to read you a couple of these articles. These are, are wonderful The sum and substance of the gospel is that our Lord Jesus Christ, the true Son of God, has made known to us the will of his heavenly Father and has with his sinlessness released us from death and reconciled us to God. Hence, all who consider other teachings equal or higher than the gospel err, and they do not know what the gospel is. For Christ Jesus is the guide and leader promised by God to all mankind, which promise was fulfilled. He is eternal salvation and head of all who believe. These are his, this is, these are his body, for his own human body is dead. Nothing is of avail without him. And he goes on. I won't read more, but... It's just an amazing statement in Christology. Zwingli was concerned about the doctrine of Christ alone. And he was one of the leading writers and proponents of it. And uh, some of these things are incredible as we read through them. He had a bit of a, an argument with Luther in uh, 1529 over the, over the communion table. They decided to disagree and they parted ways. And, and from Zwingli, the, the arm of the church called the Anabaptists was formed. Some inside that movement were extreme. They got a very hard time, the, the extreme form of Anabaptists, by both Protestant uh, reformers and the Catholic Church. And uh, they suffered some horrible things. Anabaptists means that they, they believed solely in adult baptism, right? They were taking away child baptism. And a lot of those folks got martyred by being drowned by Catholics and Protestants. But at the heart of their faith was Christ alone. Zwingli himself died in battle against the Catholic cantons in um, Capel in 1531. So, just a, another reformer to consider in this series who, who, I think above all, as I read through him, Christ alone was central in his thinking. This is one of his great quotes. So I just want to share with you before we start looking at the real heart of the theology of, of Christ alone. Through Christ alone, we are given salvation, blessedness, grace, pardon, and all that makes us in any way worthy in the sight of a righteous God. Just read through that slowly. It's a wonderful affirmation. We've sung it this morning in that hymn in Christ alone. Through Christ alone, we are given salvation. Blessedness, grace, pardon, what wonderful things to consider. 
and all that make us in any way worthy in the sight of a righteous God. This is the affirmation that Zwingli died for. The question is, would you die for the same affirmation? You see, at the heart of, of this approach to the Bible, at the heart of this truth in Christ alone, you need to have a deep understanding of the atonement of Christ. And I want to propose to you today that we're going to look at four vital things relating to the atonement of Christ. For some of you, this is not new ground. But hopefully for all of you, this is an incredible encouragement in the days in which we live. For some of you, some of this may be new ground. And these are essential things that should be tacked into your faith. We need to grow in some of these things to understand the full depth and the full richness of what Christ has done for us. So we're going to look at the sacrifice related to the atonement. We're going to look at a, a large word called propitiation. And we'll explain that as we look at it. We're going to look at substitution and finally reconciliation. So four things we will look at. The sacrifice, the propitiation, the substitution, and the reconciliation. And in all this, I just hope that you get to get a glimpse of the marvelous grace that God has poured out to us. And that this grace will, will compel you. It will constrain you to worship him. It will constrain you to live a life as ambassadors of the risen king. I hope by going through these things that, that you, it will cause you to be Christ-centered in all you do. Christ-centered in the classroom. Christ-centered in the workplace. Christ-centered in the home. Christ-centered in the church. See, as part of establishing this, this wonderful tenet of Christ alone, the Reformers understood that atonement had to be absolutely necessary. It had to be necessary because humanity, you and I, were separated from a holy God. This is what they called total depravity. Now, Millick Erison, he's a, he's a uh, theologian of our day. He's uh, defined it in this way, and I think this is a wonderful definition. He defines total depravity, by which we mean not that humans are wicked as they can possibly be. So he's saying in that particular statement that we look around the world about us, right, and not everyone behaves in a completely wicked way. There are some that do. We've seen experiences of that this week. We see experiences of it every week when we see you know, murders, we see rapes, we see violence, we see war, we see people being run down. But humans aren't as wicked as they can possibly be, but rather they are utterly unable to do anything to save themselves or to extricate themselves from their condition of sinfulness. That's what total depravity means. You and I have no ability whatsoever to bridge the gap between ourselves and God. No ability. 
And the reformers were shouting this message from the rooftops right through this period. And we should continue to shout this message because it's the truth of Scripture. Read with me in Romans chapter 3. Uh, I hope you've got your Bibles with you today. We're going to be looking at quite a number of Scriptures. But I just want to build this theology for you as we uh, look at Scripture. Scripture is the best place to understand these things. So Romans chapter 3 on the issue of total depravity. It says this, verse 9, Romans 3 verse 9. What then? Uh, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, and, and Paul in this letter grabs quotes from Psalms. He quotes quotes from Isaiah to explain the nature of humanity. He says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's pretty heavy stuff, isn't it? But that's the nature of humanity. That's what the Word of God tells us. And this is why the Reformers went to say Christ alone, because they knew there needed to be an atonement from this way. Sin separates us, folks, from the majesty of God. The summary of Scripture here and the declaration from Scripture is that humanity is totally lost without an atonement, without a Saviour. And that's the good news because there is a saviour. And there is a saviour in Christ alone. And this is wonderful news. Because Christ has provided atonement for sin. So let's look and, and return to these four things that we're going to discuss this morning. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. In the Old Testament we have a couple of major examples of sacrifice. What's the first one you think? Animal Garden Eden was one to cover the sin of Adam and Eve. One of the greater ones, I think, as you look through the Old Testament is the Passover. Okay? You have a people stuck in slavery in Egypt. You have the ten plagues that have gone through to, to, to point people, to point this nation to, to fulfill God's desire to let his people go, to, to move into the promised land, and he institutes a feast called Passover. What happened at Passover? A lamb had to be sacrificed. The throat of the lamb had to be cut. The blood had to be put on the door of the house, on the lintels. And when the death angel passed through that place, what happened? If the blood covering was there, the house was saved. People inside the house were safe. So that's a picture of sacrifice. An innocent animal had to die to atone for uh, the people. And that atonement there was a covering over. As you can see by the blood and symbolically planted on the, 
the door of the lintel of the house. Another place, a little bit further on, when the people are established in the land after wandering in the wilderness for, for 40 years and they're established, the Lord said, I want you to institute a feast called the Day of Atonement. And on this day, it happens once a year, a couple of things are going to happen. You can find the, uh, these instructions in Leviticus chapter 16. But there's going to be two goats and one bull. The bull is for the high priest. He has to sacrifice the bull to cover the, the sin of his own family and his own sin before he can enter into the Holy of Holies to, to uh, offer an offering to God. And there's going to be two goats. The first goat is called a scapegoat. So the high priest was to symbolically lay his hands on, Tom, on top of the scapegoat and it's symbolically saying this is the sin of the people. And then he would lead the goat out of the camp, out of the place where they were meeting and, and send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat, symbol, symbolizing that your sin is being removed from you. And the second goat was to be sacrificed and its blood poured across the altar to atone for sin. So they're the two wonderful Old Testament pictures, but yet there is an even greater Old Testament picture as Isaiah 53, which talks about a future servant of God who will atone for sin. Turn with me to Isaiah 53, if you could, and just read a couple of verses here. He was despised and rejected by men. Remember, this is prophecy, 700 years before Christ walked on earth. This is God's gracious hand displaying what is about to happen. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as uh, one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. It's a picture of pointing forward to Christ and what he would bear on our behalf to deal with the issue of sin. You move into the New Testament, you see John, where actually John the Baptist, crying out when he sees the Messiah, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A sacrificial terms. You see, Jesus himself in, in John 3, 17, saying, uh, For God did not send his, send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. A sacrifice had to be paid. Jesus himself stated later in John 15, Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. It's really interesting too when you look at John chapter 11 and you've got, the, you got uh, the, the high priest of the time inside Jerusalem, Caiaphas is his name. I don't think he actually knew what he was saying, but he was in a debate with the Sanhedrin about this fellow Jesus and he said, 
Nor do you understand that it's better that, that you, that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. He was saying this in a mocking way concerning Jesus. But it came to the end to be true. And probably in the New Testament, one of the greatest portions of understanding Jesus' sacrifices is Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9, 11 through 15. I'll let you read that in your own time. Look at it carefully. Because it tells us that the, the blood of the, the previous sacrifices of bulls and goats is no longer required because Christ has appeared as the high priest. And he's greater and more perfect than anything that went on before. And he's entered into the place of, of sacrificing to secure an eternal redemption. Look at those words. When Christ paid the price on the cross, he was securing something that is of eternal value. Never more did it have to be done. Christ was the mediator of the new covenant and he's promised an eternal inheritance since his death redeems us from sin. Oh, I got a bit wound up and then give you the slide. There you go. So sacrifice. Second part is propitiation. Now this is a word we don't use very often. How often do you use this word in everyday language? Who's used this word this week? And why not? Propitiation. What does propitiation mean? It means that Christ died to appease God's wrath and anger against sin. I'll repeat that for you. It means that Christ died to appease God's wrath and anger against sin. In some ways, this is a lost doctrine of the modern church. You see, God is perfect in justice and mercy. He's absolutely perfect in justice and mercy. And for him to be a completely just God, sin has to be paid for. It just happens to be that this sin was paid for by Christ, his very own son. Let's just read Romans chapter 3 again. We won't have time to cover it in-depthly, but you'll get the sense of what propitiation means when we read through this. Romans three twenty-one. But now the righteousness of God has been made a manifest apart from the law through the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift, grace alone, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, Christ alone, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Notice who puts Christ forward. God himself. For his wrath to appease, he has designed Christ to go forward to the substitutionary place. So his wrath can be appeased. 
to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of all of the one who has faith in Jesus. Propitiation is essential to understand in the gospel. God's wrath needed to be satisfied. It could only be satisfied through the perfect one, Christ our Lord. Paul's idea of the atoning death is not just simply that it covers sins and cleanses from its corruptions. That is a right assumption, but it's a a jewel-sided coin. The sacrifice also appeases God who hates sin and is radically opposed to it. I think we miss that sometimes. God's absolute abhorrence of sin. And you always got to put that on the counter side for his absolute grace in providing a sacrifice for sin. I was going to give you a little rundown on another great reformer here, John Calvin. But I don't have time. There's one thing I want to say about, about Calvin. I think he's much misunderstood. Uh, primarily because we label him. We hear this all the time. Uh, we label him around debates or around theology. However, he was significant through this Reformation period. He was a Frenchman. He got exiled from France into Switzerland. He was converted in, in 1532. He was forced to leave France. He settled on the Basile, and here he wrote the first edition of the Institutes of Christian Religion. How many of those here have got that in their bookshelf? No, that's a nasty thing to say. How many have it by the fireplace as a fire starter? How many have it for incurring insomnia? Look, this is, um, he was 27 when he wrote this thing. He only wrote the first edition. That, that, that covered six chapters. One book, six chapters. By the time he had finished his fifth edition, he had six books and 79 chapters. There's a treatise on in Christ alone. A wonderful theologian. And it's really interesting, just as an aside for, for him, he, he was in a pulpit in Geneva for a couple of years. And he's preaching through Romans. And he got kicked out of there because things were starting to get a little bit hot for him. And he, he went off to Strasbourg for three years. And then they realized that they had wrongly accused him and moved him out of this area. So they invited him back to Geneva. When he got up the next Sunday in Geneva, he opened his Bible and he started the next verse in his text. He was dedicated to the exposition of Scripture verse by verse. He was a pillar of the Reformation. And we understand the theology of the Reformation because of what he's written in his institutes. And he was so Christocentric. So finally, the atonement. We talk about the final two things, substitution and reconciliation. Please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 because this, this highlights both of these issues. 2 Corinthians 
chapter 5, and, and we'll begin at verse 14, go through 21. I'll only make brief comments on here. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that once one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him as thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, through whom Christ reconciled to us, us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, be ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. A couple of things from this text that must be noted when it comes to atonement. Firstly, and most importantly, Christ is our substitute. What does that mean to you? Christ is your substitute. It means all your sin has been laid upon him. All my sin has been laid upon him. And this great exchange has occurred, and I don't understand the marvels of this great exchange because all of Christ's righteousness has been laid upon me. That's incredible. His righteousness has been imputed to our account. That's a pure act of grace because you and I could not do that. That's why these terms of grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone are so intertwined. Thanks for that, Siri. Um, <laughs> for the Christian who has been graciously saved, there is an outflow of reconciliation. This is what this text talks about. We have this overriding fact that, that Christ is our substitute so what is our response? Our response is this great exchange should motivate us to, to act in love. This very fact is verse 14 says, for the love of Christ controls us or compels us. That's the motivating factor for doing anything in life for the Christian. It's the love of Christ. And his sacrifice. Secondly, states that we are a new creation. And because we're a new creation, we have responsibilities under the headship of Christ. And in here, this talks about our responsibility. Because Christ has reconciled us, because we are in this relationship, we are 
to be his mouthpiece. We are to be his ambassadors. We are to share the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is another way of saying reconciliation. That's been entrusted to us to share. This is an incredibly confronting portion of scripture. See, we're his ambassadors. What does it mean to be ambassador? Anyone here ever been an ambassador for anything? Well, you are because you're ambassadors of Christ. You are Christ's representatives. If you have put your faith and trust in Christ, you are Christ's representatives. I am Christ's representative here. And our role, according to these verses, is to pass on the ministry of reconciliation. So how does the truth of Christ alone impact your life in this moment in time? As you contemplate his sacrifice and his propitiation on your behalf, realizing that your salvation is in Christ alone, how does that change your thinking today? How does that compel you and constrain you to be his ambassador? How does his love for you cause you to worship him differently today? I'd encourage you to, to, if you're stale in these things, the, the place to start is back in God's Word, thinking through these verses. Thinking through the sacrifice, thinking through the propitiation, thinking through the life you now have in the Spirit who draws us to these truths. The question for me is, am I wise steward with the message that has been entrusted to me? See, we have been entrusted with a message, a ministry of reconciliation, the, the ministry of telling people about the forgiveness that only comes through Christ. You know, do, do we seek opportunities throughout the week to present the wonderful truth of salvation in Christ and in Christ alone? Mums, do you take the opportunity to continually tell your little ones, about the salvation in Christ and Christ alone. Dads, do you reinforce to your kids this wonderful message? Dads, do you reinforce, and husbands, do you reinforce to your family unit that Christ and Christ alone is your Lord? Young adults, young people, are you captured by God's grace and the message of the gospel? Does it capture your heart? Does it change you? Does it motivate you to, to be sold out for him? How does this message shape your thinking, your leisure time, your view on dating, your view on career, your view on education? Is every thought held captive to Christ? These challenges aren't a to-do list, Right? These challenges are based on the fact of what Christ has done for us. This is a response to his great love. And this is the heart of what the reformers are wanting to, to proclaim. It is in Christ and Christ alone. Thanks, music team.